Look at Mark chapter 2. Before we do, let's bow in a word of prayer once again. Father, we and needy people come before you. And we ask by your abiding spirit in us that you indeed would see fit to do a work in each one of us. Lord, we need help and understanding of your word that we might apply it to our hearts and lives. That we might go through this life in a way that honors you and glorifies you. Father, as we learn about your work in the lives of the disciples while you were here on earth, we just ask for an extra measure of grace as we dive into this text today. Be with us all, Lord, that we might leave from here changed, happy, and once again praising and glorifying your name, whose name we pray in. Amen. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and I'll be reading today from the Legacy Standard Version, so if it's a little different than your version you're used to, I apologize, I meant to grab my ESV. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God around the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If you were to read and hear exposition from the beginning of this book penned by John Mark, you would see that our Lord Jesus was indeed bringing the kingdom of God to the earth. He was announced by his forerunner, John the Baptist. He was declared to be God the Son by the Father and anointed as prophet, priest, and king by the Holy Spirit coming upon him as a dove. Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Messiah had come to pass. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, 
giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. You know, there is also learnings from numerous texts in the Old Testament that a king or judge once proclaimed, anointed, and given God's spirit had to go out and prove his calling. And this is exactly what we see Jesus is doing here in the first few chapters. To be more precise, chapter 1, verse 21 through to chapter 3, verse 35. He was proving his calling. And today we're about to see how King Jesus is also Lord of the Sabbath. And what indeed that means for us as the people of God. So what about the Sabbath? Wasn't the Sabbath an old covenant thing for Israel? Isn't the Sabbath a rule that was in place for the people of Moses' day? Sure, it's part of the Ten Commandments, but didn't Jesus abrogate it? Didn't he cancel the Sabbath? Doesn't the New Testament teach that all days are the same? For instance, we read in Romans 14, 5, we, we see one person judges one day above the other. Another judges every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. The Sabbath day has most certainly been a point of debate among Christians, especially in more modern times. And, and, and more specifically, in our modern times with the false teachings of Ellen G. White, the false prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist religion, and Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses. These teachings have somewhat creeped into our midst. And so we think that the Sabbath we, we just don't want to deal with it. These modern false religions, we have to remember, were formulated by the twisting of Scripture, making Saturday Sabbath observance obligatory for proving one's salvation. That's what they go to, such lengths. They put such an emphasis on the Saturday Sabbath that they say that one can even judge who the true people of God are simply by seeing who observes that day. Those who observe another day or do not adhere to the Saturday Sabbath are therefore considered eternally cut off. It is that horrid. And just like the Judaizers of Jesus' day, legalists, add to scripture and demand a strict adherence to their twisted interpretation, completely missing the blessing 
and true interpretation of this day of rest. Of course, we know that what they teach is heresy. But where do they really go wrong? Is not the word of God, especially the commands of God that were written in stone by the finger of God and handed to Moses on the mountain, covered in smoke, eternally binding? So much confusion. So many questions. But will Jesus teach us the answers in today's texts? Here we are about to see the first two challenges regarding Sabbath from the Pharisees. So let's look at verse 23 once again and we'll start with that. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples began to make their way along picking the heads of grain. Any of you who have farmed or been on a farm or spent any time on a farm would be familiar with how to thresh grain by hand. As, as kids, my brother and I used to enjoy plucking a few heads of grain and by rubbing them in your hands like this. Right, Kevin? Rubbing them in your hands like this, it threshes the grain. And the kernels fall out in your hand and the chaff you can simply go and blow it away you're left with a nice little handful of grain it was easy to pluck them and keep on walking while you thrust and while you chewed and this is most likely what the disciples were doing here they're wandering along, they're picking a few heads, they're threshing the grain, they're eating the grain. But the disciples of Jesus were obviously following him through the grain fields, but they were most likely oblivious to the spying eyes that were on them. These spying eyes that were ready to accuse them of breaking Sabbath laws. Here Mark makes a point of bringing to us that it was the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath day on which this occurred. And so that gave ammunition to the Pharisees to question Jesus and bring a charge against his disciples. Now, this would also be an affront or an accusation against Jesus' direct discipleship of them. By questioning his disciples, what they were doing was definitely an affront to Jesus' method of discipleship. So the, their uh, accusation against the disciples was twofold. Accusing the disciples... And at the same time, accusing Jesus to his face. But Jesus, as we'll see, answers in such brilliant fashion. First of all, he's questioned. Look at 
Verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You know, the Pharisees we read about in the Gospels were the forefathers of the rabbinic Judaism of today. Now, this verse serves to prove that as by this time in history, the Jews of Jesus' day had compiled a list of do's and don'ts that added to Scripture. They were saying at that time, over 1,000 steps would have been Sabbath law-breaking. Harvesting would be Sabbath law-breaking. So this same faulty interpretation of Old Testament law is indeed still practiced today. The, the Sabbath law in effect for this Jewish religion would say the same things. No more than a thousand steps on the Sabbath day. And that's why many Jewish um, communities live so close to their building, to their place of worship. So, not only that, but this act of simply rubbing your hands together with grain in it was, was seen by them as harvesting. It was seen by them as work. And therefore you had to completely deny yourself. Only walk a few steps. As our verse seems to indicate, it would have been harvesting coupled with walking too far on the Sabbath. And so they bring this accusation against Jesus and his disciples. Now, as somewhat of a side note here, it can't really be more clear. These Jews were hunting for ways to accuse Jesus and his disciples already by this point in Jesus' ministry. Now, just a little clarity about that. It wasn't very many days, really, into Jesus' ministry already. And the heat is building against the Lord Jesus and his disciples. They're trying to catch him already. But yet their blatant hypocrisy was showing. They were following the disciples around. They were like, why were they taking more than a thousand steps? They would have had to have been following these disciples around in order to see what they were doing and accuse them. Why were they not focused on other activities and following their own laws? They were bent on really investigating the sins of others. Blatant hypocrisy. You know, the devil himself is called the accuser of the brethren. It's one of his titles. And, is, and, and it's because he's steeped in his sinister work. Revelation 12.10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So we see in real time, in real history, the accuser of the brethren, his children, if you will, these Pharisees, accusing the brethren right to Jesus' face. It is easy to conclude that these uh, Jews were indeed children of the devil. For they followed and did exactly what their father, the devil, does. Dead in their sins, they blindly followed him. And we have to remember that we too once followed down that path. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 reminds us, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And the reason I bring us back to remind ourselves of that is, we can read this, we can read into it, we can think of the Pharisees, we can think of the Jews today, and we can look at ourselves and say, ah, we're better than them. No, we're not. But it should give us reason to pause and to think through how generous and loving and kind our Lord was to bring us out of that darkness. And therefore we need to be praying for those who are still following their father, the devil. You know, the spirit of the Antichrist was at work in these guys, accusing twisting the scripture and placing burdens on the people of God. And in this case, making the Sabbath into something it wasn't ever intended for. And so, Jesus starts to build his case against the faulty interpretation of the Pharisees with his first answer. Let's look at that. His first answer in verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God around the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. So let's turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 21, 1 Samuel 21, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. First Samuel 21, Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was a priest at the same time as Abithar the high priest, as Jesus had mentioned. And and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commanded uh, me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I'm sending you and with which I've commanded you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. So now what do you have on hand? 
Give five loaves of bread into my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before Yahweh in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. So this bread had already been taken off the golden table. The priest, you notice, does adhere to the Sabbath regulations and the regulations concerning this bread. He asks the question to David, are your men pure? And David answers yes. And the priest, out of an act of compassion and an act of mercy, gives them the showbread that had come off the table. But notice another thing, the hot bread had already been placed. In verse 6, it talks about there was no bread but the bread of the presence which was removed. It had been removed already. It wasn't like they were taking it away from the presence and not replacing it. It had already been taken down. So it was already good for the priests to eat it, to do what they needed to do with it. Either use it for sustenance or use it for an act of mercy. And so Jesus, using this story about David... And what he did when he was in need and his companions became hungry. And how he entered the, the house of God. And he ate this consecrated bread. This consecrated bread or showbread. Now the showbread or the bread of the presence or the consecrated bread. Whatever name you want to hold to there. The, the Bible uses all those terms. It held a symbolic significance within the Jewish tabernacle and later in the temple. It would be placed on a table in the holy place. And this bread was a symbol. This bread was a symbol of the continual presence of God among his people. That was the, the spiritual significance of it. The 12 loaves of bread were placed on the table which represented the 12 tribes of Israel, signifying the unity and representation of the entire community before God. The bread being regularly replaced symbolized God's continual provision for his people. Isn't that marvelous? So the significance around it and the meaning of it. Leviticus 24, 5 through 9 tells us this. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, 
on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings to the Lord by fire, his portion forever. Beyond representation, it also symbolized fellowship and communion with God. As the priests consumed the showbread, it signified the spiritual nourishment and sustenance received through communion with God, emphasizing the need for the people to be in continual fellowship with him. Now, I, I need you to hear that and hang on to that thought. This, this show, this emphasis on the need for the people to be in continual fellowship with him. Now, not unlike what we now practice each Lord's Day when we, are all, when, when, when we all present ourselves in the presence of God and proclaim the need of God's spiritual nourishment and sustenance. Then symbolically proclaim the gospel when we partake of the bread and wine at the Lord's table. Do you see the connection here? From Old Covenant to New Covenant. Jesus was indeed presence with his disciples in plain view here in our story today. So, his answer using this occurrence in 1 Samuel to answer the Pharisees is profound when we ponder what he was saying. Jesus brilliantly starts off his answer to them by way of question, first off. He says, have you never read? It's, it's obvious they'd read it before, but he's, he's telling them, hey, have you never read? Like, obviously you guys do not have understanding of what was going on there. Have you never read? It was a challenge to them of their method of interpretation. It was a back at you moment in the heat of their accusation. And by this first answer showed that logically the Pharisees interpretation was also accusing the priests in David's time of profaning the Sabbath. Do you see that? So by accusing the disciples and Jesus... Jesus brings this answer to them using David in 1 Samuel. By their reasoning, by their interpretation of what was going on there, they were actually accusing those priests of sinning against God. So Jesus was demonstrating through this episode in David's life that human need and mercy shown was a provision in God's word. 
It was a provision on the Sabbath day to perform mercy, uh, to, to actually work or give or do something to do that act of mercy was legal in the sight of God, if you will. The strict adherence to the ceremonial regulations of the law without the recognition of God's provision for works of necessity and to perform acts of mercy was a grave error the Pharisees were making. Secondly, it would have been that being it was the Sabbath that David showed up on would have meant that the priests had, like I said earlier, taken that bread off of the holy plate, the table in the holy place, and that the bread given was from actually the week before. So the Pharisees had missed these things. It would have been lawful for the priest to eat it. And obviously by Jesus teaching here with authority to use it to feed the hungry, to perform an act of mercy. Just think of if I was to give any one of you anything, let's just name it a pack of gum. And you decided that somebody else needed it worse than you. It's not wrong of you. It's yours now. It's yours to do with what you desire. And you see somebody else that really would like that. Give it away to them. That's not sin. It's not sin. But here it's more serious. This act of mercy that these priests uh, did was a provision in the law. Now, in Matthew 12, 1 through 14, we see the parallel text to Mark chapter 2. And that's where it's recorded, Matthew 12, 1 through 14. Matthew, however, includes, which is very helpful to us understanding here, he includes that Jesus also used Hosea 6, verse 6, to counter the legalism of the Pharisees' interpretation of the Sabbath laws. In verse 7 of Matthew 12, Jesus said, But if you had known what this means, and then he quotes from Hosea 6, 6, For I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice. So they had condemned the innocent. As Matthew tells us, Jesus said to them in the last part of verse 7. They were making a grave error in in tying burdens around the neck of the people with their man-made Sabbath regulations. Now something that happens today in these cults and even in the, the Jewish temples of our day. They add to the Sabbath regulations of scripture. He goes on. This is answer number two and three. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. He's continuing his answers here. He says, and Jesus was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
It may be claimed by some, as Richard Barcellus writes in his book, Getting the Garden Right, page 203, that Jesus advocates Sabbath breaking and therefore proving he was abolishing it. But does this text and others bear this weight, he asks. Well, the the answer is no, Jesus wasn't breaking or abolishing. He then argues that those who take this faulty path of abolition of the Sabbath err by way of using the example of the Sabbath being abolished in the same way the temple was done away with. We know the temple was done away with in 70 AD. But the temple was not abolished. It was changed. The church is now the temple. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 and 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Tell us this. He, he goes on to add on page 204 of his book. Instead of Matthew 12 proving that Christ abolished the Sabbath in all senses... It actually argues that he upheld it and sought to correct the Pharisees' faulty interpretation of the Sabbath law as it then stood. And then a bit later, he writes, Christ upheld the Sabbath and cleared it of Pharisaic encumbrances, but also set the stage for further revelation about it. So where am I going with that? So let's look at what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. Again in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Not only did he correct the Pharisees, but informed his disciples what the Sabbath really is. Who, it, who it's really made for and how... He has authority over it. Now first, we do understand that Jesus is creator, don't we? Hebrews 1 verse 2, for for instance, tells us that. He therefore created the Sabbath and said it was created for man. Or made for man. And that begs the question, what is its function? And if we rightly understand the Sabbath, we start to rightly understand the functions of the church. If we understand why we are to gather each Lord's Day, each Christian Sabbath, if I may, we start to understand better how loving and and kind God is in commanding us in his love that one day be kept in seven for our rest. It goes way beyond that though. Not only physical rest, but to be able to come together and practice the one another's and rest in Christ and be reminded of his goodness, his kindness. The fact that he went to that cross where he willingly laid down on that beam where he willingly stretched out his hands and allowed them to nail his wrists to that crossbeam. 
As they hoisted him in the air, he looked with joy at what was going to happen, that this act of mercy that he was doing would redeem a people to himself, that he might introduce them perfect and well and sinless before the Father as his work was complete. Said, it is finished on the cross. That act of mercy did it all. Completed it all. 1 John 5, 1 through 5 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everything that has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the overcoming that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. With that in mind. To keep, to hold dear, the Sabbath command is not a legalistic burden. When we see it in the light of who we are. We're designed to worship God, to enjoy God, to love God and love the people of God. We're recreated to love him. We're new creatures in Christ. If you're having an identity crisis right now, remember Christ. Christ is your identity. Brothers and sisters, we're in Christ. We've been given the gift of life. And it's he who will bring us to completion. It's he who will keep us in his glorious kingdom. It's him that will finish this work completely. And usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And bring us in where he is. To love him. To honor him. To know him forever. His atoning sacrificial work was for us. And obedience from the heart follows in faith. When, when we see his command as an opportunity to receive the blessing he has for us, to meet together, to hear his voice as the Bible's read and expounded and taught, to practice righteousness with the people of God in the Lord's presence. My brothers and sisters, that showbread was to show us what was going to happen in the future. Now we get to enact what was happening back there in a shadow. We're now, we're now able to present ourselves in the holy of holies before our creator, before our maker. We're continually coming into the presence of our God to be fed by him. 
What an act of mercy our Lord Jesus has done. And so the Sabbath was made for man. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He calls himself the Son of Man. And we know by Daniel 7, 13 through 14, I'll just read that to you. He says, the Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He not only fulfilled the law's commands perfectly and taught its true meaning perfectly, but through his resurrection on the third day, on the first day of the week, reinstituted the Sabbath day to be kept on the eighth day our calendar that falls on a Sunday. Now some cults will look at that and say, oh, you worship the sun god because you're worshiping on a Sunday. But woe to those who call good evil, the Bible tells us. The Christian Sabbath, in keeping with the original creation ordinance of one day and seven being kept for rest, rest for our bodies, rest for our souls, as we learn to rest in Christ's finished work on the cross, now points us forward to the new work he is accomplishing. The new heavens, the new earth to come, the new creation. He is gone to prepare a place for us. Bride of Christ, he's preparing a place for us. Where we will have eternal rest. Us gathering one day out of seven. Gives us such rest. Such reminder of the rest to come. But such rest for our souls now. In the hope that lies within us of one day. Being done with sin completely. Sin and death no more. No more tears. No more pain. No more struggle. With the Lord. The Christian Sabbath is a beautiful gift of God to us, his bride. Where we can hold it dear. We can keep it. And it's not burdensome. It's an absolute delight. And so once we actually grasp that, we yearn for the eighth day, that one day in seven, that we can come and meet together and, and come before the Lord knowing his presence is with us. He is omnipresent. He is here now pouring out his love on you, on me. It's glorious to meet together. The Christian Sabbath is a beautiful thing. 
that God has made. Great is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? We can now present ourselves in the holy place, even the holy of holies, and eat of the consecrated bread. Do you see the picture there? When we come to the table of the Lord, together, we are all proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming the gospel, in effect, when we come to the Lord's table. Together we're saying, yes, the Lord died for us. He bled and died for us. That's a rehearsal for heaven. So what a privilege it is. The Lord's Day. The 1689 London Baptist Confession states in chapter 22, paragraphs 7 and 8. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. The observation of the last day of the week being abolished. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties, listen to this, of necessity and mercy. These old guys got it. They understood it. By his authority as the Son of Man and by his resurrection, he has instituted this new day, the Lord's Day, where we can gather in unity and in love for him and perform the one another's to rest in him and in his finished work, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, and watch as he works in us to bring eternal glory, honor, and praise to his name. So does observing the Sabbath determine our salvation like the Jews or the JWs or the SDA would say? Well, of course not. Of course not. Does lack of observance, however, reveal something of the heart? My answer is maybe. Could be. Maybe only ignorance, but it certainly could. But how about we rather than judge people that by some work of providence are hindered from coming rather 
preach to them how Jesus preached to them. That it's an absolute delight to come together as the Lord's people and worship our great Savior. What a God we serve. What a Lord we adore. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Our salvation rests in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for the Sabbath day. Thank you for greater clarification. I just pray each one here would indeed have a new level of understanding of your work and the rest that we have in it. And Lord, that you would bless each one as we go out from here tonight, as we talk with our spouses, as we enjoy time with our families, that we would indeed have heard your word and be made able to apply it. Ordering our affairs in life in anticipation of each Lord's day that we might rehearse that great and glorious day when we are brought into the new creation. Father, I just am so very thankful for each one of my brothers and sisters here. I pray your extreme blessings on each one. Your love that would just fill them this month, this Christmas season, as we remember the Lord's birth, the Lord's death, the Lord's resurrection. Oh, thank you, Lord God, for my brothers and sisters. May they all be blessed and always be in perpetual wonder of your loving kindness toward us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.